to uh, our text for this morning, James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And if you don't have, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the text is located there in the uh, order of worship. Sorry, I'm turning. Yes, good. Devilish phone. Okay. James chapter 4, uh, we're going to be beginning in verse 1. If you're, if you're visiting, we are studying through the book of James. This is it's a book of the New Testament. This is written by James. He was uh, Jesus' brother. He grew up with Jesus. And, uh, and during most of Jesus' ministry was not a believer. Became one later, um, sometime apparently around the resurrection of Christ. And, uh, and, and wrote this book. It's very much a finger pointer. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of imperatives, and you're going to get that this morning, but we're going to see how, hopefully, this is good news. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I was a campus minister before moving to Greenville, and one day when I was visiting with a, a guy that was involved in our ministry, he told me that his, his mom was having an affair, and that he not only knew about it, but when he had been home... Uh, last time, he knew that she was out with another man uh, eating a meal at a restaurant, and he knew where it was, and so he went and confronted her at the restaurant. And I thought, man, who is ever ready for that? Who knows the right thing to say? And, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't asking it to be flippant, but I said, what in the world did you say when you walked up and your mom is at a table with another man? Because I thought... And thankfully, I've never been in that situation. But what, what sentence comes out first? And he said, I went to the restaurant, and I just walked up, and I looked at both of them. And I looked at my mom, and I said, time to go home. And I thought, man, that might have been the perfect way to say it. He did not come in wielding a bat, but he, he said the thing that was true. It is time to go home. This is crazy. This text that we're about to look at is about Christians fighting. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not quite sure where you land spiritually, if you have ever thought to yourself, you know, I, at one level I'm intrigued by these things, but I've got to be honest with you, when I look at how Christians fight among themselves, how churches split, how they squabble about stuff, I don't know. It's, it's a, I don't know if I want to hitch my wagon to that. It, be encouraged that the Scriptures take a dim view of it too. And is actually going to diagnose it in this text. If you're a Christian, uh, you might say, I, you know, I guess I'm a part of it, but it's discouraging to me. I've, I've seen this in churches I've been involved in. You may have seen it here at Downtown Prez. And you think, I, this just doesn't sound like what we're supposed to be. It's discouraging to me. It should be. It should be. And here's the interesting thing. James is going to say, of course, there's always something up underneath the behavior. And what's up underneath the behavior is like what we would call an emotional affair. Emotional adultery. Now, this is a very confrontational passage, but here's the hope, is that there is good news here. And the good news is something tantamount. It's like James coming to us and saying... It is time to go home. As I'm watching you fight, 
as I'm looking at these desires that rage inside of us, here is the deal. It is time to go home. All right, James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we just said, this is very confrontational. And... On the one hand, we want to hear what you're saying. We don't want to tone it down or explain it away. We also want to come away from here having heard good news. And in some ways, this seems like a tall order. And so we ask you for that, that we will hear the hard things we need to hear. And we will very much hear good news. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, somebody... Uh, forwarded an article to me, and it's an article about Billy Graham's grandson, a guy named uh, Tullian Chavigian, or Chavigian, not quite sure exactly way to say that. He, uh, he's a pastor in our denomination in Florida, and it's an article describing his experience of having been a church planner in, I believe, the Fort Lauderdale area and was approached by a larger, older, established church in our denomination. His church plant was experiencing huge numeric growth, but did not have facilities. This older, established church had massive facilities, but had a decline of of numbers. And so people approached him about, what if we merged these churches and you were the senior pastor? And several times he said no, but finally... Uh, just other people's counsel and prayer about it and talking with his wife, he, he said yes. So he, he becomes the pastor of this new church, which is a merger at, the, at these facilities of this older church. The honeymoon ended almost immediately. And the way this article starts out, he's describing the, the kind of attacks that he began to experience. Now, this is just a snapshot. 
Uh, it was tremendously uncomfortable coming to worship every Sunday morning during that time, not knowing who liked you and who hated you. There were people in the choir who, when I would stand up to preach, would get up and walk out. People would sit in the front row and just stare me down as I preached. If you do that to me, I will stare back at you. I'm going to tell you, all right? That is one skill I have. It was extremely uncomfortable. People would grab me in the hallway between services and say, quote, you're ruining this church and I'm going to do everything I can to stop you. Between services. I would come out to my car and it would be keyed. Some people would stop at nothing to intimidate. They put petitions on car windows during the worship service. They started an anonymous blog, which was very painful. Uh, Here we were trying to build consensus, and there's this anonymous blog fueling rumors and lies. Anonymous letters were sent out to the entire congregation with accusations and character assassinations, some of which were about his wife, by the way. He said it was absolutely terrible. Now, um, this, this is an interview. The interviewer asks him, what was the deal? I, I mean, that is the question. Why were people being so mean? And without naming any names, he, hear this little observation that he makes. He says, well, part of it may have been an old-fashioned power struggle. There were people who had been in places of power under the former pastor who felt that this was their church and they should be in charge of running it. Now, now think, about, think about what that means. Because what he's saying is, there were people who, let's say, they head up this facet of the church's life. They head up this ministry or, or whatever. They're just kind of this component of the church. They run it. Are you telling me that the desire to run that can be so strong and ravenous that if someone messes with that, that you'll key the pastor's car? Yes. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to read that example is that is a a contemporary demonstration that James 4 is not rhetorically overblown. It's true. And this is talking about... It's not talking about, yeah, people fight so much, we've got all these wars. It's not talking about just humanity in general. This is a letter to believers. This is a letter to Christians. And it's saying Christians can have things inside of them that they want so much, so strongly, that if somebody gets in the way with it or messes it, uh, messes it up or obstructs it, that whatever face is attached to that, a, a Christian can hate that person, quarrel with that, that person, fight with that person. So I want to look at two things from this text. One's about the self, you know, us, and specifically the Christian self, not just people in general. The self and God. And let's put it this way. The ravenous self, the generous God. Okay, the ravenous self and the generous God. All right, first off, the ravenous self. Here's the question that James is putting on the table. Why do Christians fight the way they do? And I'm I'm going to belabor this point a little bit more. He's talking about Christians. Did you catch in the first, uh, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, i.e., my Christian readers? And then in verses 2 through 4, what's the pronoun that keeps coming up? You, 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 you. 
Now, he says something else that's telling. Later on in verse 1, after what causes fights among you, he says, is it not this? Okay, I'm going to answer my own question. That your passions are at war within you. And within you, you could literally translate that within your members, in your members. And he doesn't mean members of a congregation. He means members of one person, like the components of one Christian. He's saying this, there are these passions inside of you individually, and it's manifesting itself in these squabbles and fights in the plural you of the church body. What does he call them? He calls them passions. These are aggressive wants. Uh, The Greek word that's used in verse 1 and verse 3 for passions is where we get the term hedonism. Uh, It may be the lust for sexuality. It may be the lust for power. Often in the church, it's that one big time. Attention, approval, but it's something that is such an aggressive want, it's starting to run the show. The verb that he uses in uh, in verse 2 where he says you desire, sometimes in the New Testament that Greek verb means a good desire, but usually what it means is where a desire has sort of taken on a a life of its own. It's become an uber desire. That if I don't have this, I'm in a foul mood and my life is not good and all I'm thinking about is is how to get it. Now, how do the aggressive wants show themselves when they're unmet, unsatisfied, uh, unfed? Aggressive action. All right, look, look, here's, I mean, and sadly, uh, if you've seen a real church fight, you've seen, you've had a front row seat to this. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, he probably, in the context, doesn't mean actual murder. One thing we've seen in this series is that James, over and over and over, keeps pointing back to the Sermon on the Mount. Well, one of the famous things that's said in the Sermon on the Mount is, if you hate someone, Jesus says, that is murder. At a heart level, that's murder. You you didn't pull out the knife, you didn't pull the trigger, but at the heart level, you've engaged in murder. You desire, you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Aggressive. Now, this is interesting. He says, when Christians do this, inside of them, there's kind of two ways it can go. There's a non-praying form of it, and there's a praying form of it. The non-praying form, he says, you, you don't have, there's this thing you want, you don't have it because you don't ask. And that sounds like another head nod to the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and you'll receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened. If you need something, pray about it. It may be for the Christian, if there's this thing you want, but you know it would be, it would be crazy to go to God and say, Lord, I really want... You, you just know from the thinking of that or the saying of it that this is not something that I need to want so much. So you can't bring yourself to ask for it. And James says, well, then don't be surprised that you don't get it. So that's the non-praying form. But then there's the praying form. And what does he say? You ask and you don't get it. Why? Because you ask wrongly. I think the King James says you ask amiss. 
The, the, even the way you're requesting this is wrong-headed. Why is it wrong-headed? Because the reason you want it is not to glorify God. The reason you want it is not so you can love other people and love the Lord and serve others. The reason you want it is you want to spend it on your passions. And it is the mercy of God to say, the answer is no. You know, I, I heard somebody say this recently, and it, it, it stuck with me. He said he became a Christian in his 20s, and as he looks back on things that he passionately asked for as a brand new Christian in his 20s, he said, you know, maybe 25% of, of those things were good things to ask for, but now that I've got several decades of vantage point, I go, 75% of those, if God had given me that, it would have been a train wreck. So 75% of it was, was not smart asking. But then he said this, okay, now that I'm in my, I don't know, late 50s, early 60s, what are my percentages now? It's a great question. What, you know, what are, my, what are the statistics now? I don't know. One of the reasons is because of what Jake was talking about, because we deceive ourselves. Now, here's the thing. You may be here. I mean, it, I, I almost wanted to get rid of saying you may. I mean, let's just say you're here. That we know. You're here, and there are things that we want. And it may be that we're getting very, very frustrated, even angry with God, because, you know, we, we know theologically, we know biblically, you know me. You know everything. Like we even know the word omnipotence. You're omnipotent, God. You know everything. Or omniscient. Yeah, he's also omnipotent. But he's omniscient. He knows everything. Keep it straight, Brian. Okay, omniscient. You're omniscient, God. You know everything. You know me, and you know how important this is to me, and yet you won't give it to me. I thought you were loving. Now, here's the deal. It may be, it may be that God's going to give the very thing we asked for down the road, but here's the reality. God does not need us to like Him back. And He is not insecure about whether we are frustrated with Him or very pleased with Him. What He wants for us is what's best. Uh, I'm going off, off notes here, but a friend of mine called me this week, and, and he uh, is a very dear friend of mine. He said, you know what I was reading? I was reading in Deuteronomy. And he said, I came across this verse, and it just got me. And it's, it's where God says... Here's what I want you to do. When you cross into the promised land, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold fast to me. He said, I'm curious about what that verb hold fast means. And it just so happened that I'd studied this recently, so I got to be the brainiac, you know, got to, got to sound smart for a second. I said, I'm going to tell you what it means, and you're going to have chills. In Deuteronomy 10, when he says that I want you to love me and hold fast to me, it's the same Hebrew verb that's at the end of Genesis 2 when it records the first marriage of Adam and Eve. And it says, And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I mean, it, it, it's the verb of the sinless, joyful, holy man and the sinless, joyful, holy woman clinging to each other. The man taking the woman saying, ah, This is bone of my bones. 
and flesh of my flesh. She's, she's going to be called woman because she came from man. I just love her, and I don't want to let go of her. And God says, do you want to know what I want from you? I want you to do that with me because that is absolutely what is best for you. What you need most is truth and beauty and goodness, and that is found in me. Those things point to me. I am the greatest good that you seek. You could be here this morning and be single and terribly frustrated by it. And you may have said, you know what? I am a Christian and I'm committed only to dating other Christians and I've prayed about it and God is not providing it. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm angry about it. Now, who kn- I have no idea how it's going to turn out. But James would say it is very possible that what is going on inside of you is that the desire is not for a marriage where you're going to ever be broken and have to dramatically change. These fundamental things about you will have to change and you'll have to serve and give your life away. It may be that the spouse that you're praying for is going to give you a mental picture where you never are ashamed of yourself and you're never broken and you never have to really give your life away and everything comes easy. And because that is such a false picture, God in His love says, no. If I give you that, you will spend it on your passions. You will live to fulfill yourself. But it could be for the married person too. Now you could be here saying, I am a Christian and my spouse is a Christian because I committed myself to only marrying a Christian. But I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with my spouse. And I'm praying to God about it. And He hears me. Why won't it change? It may be that there is change you're not even able to process that's coming your way sooner than you think. But it may be that the mental picture that's driving the prayer request is I want a, prayer, I want a marriage where I don't have to struggle anymore. And I'm never broken And I never have to apologize. And I get all the things that I wanted. And God in His mercy says, no. If I come in and answer that according to your mental picture right now, I will enable you. I will enable your selfishness. Let me read something else about this, uh, about Tullian. I call him Tullian. He, he, he talks about when he was just in the thick of this thing, and he goes on vacation. And it's, it's really like one of these Hallmark movie moments where just you know, the guy looking out over the water, and it just finally, inside of him, it just goes down. He says, On the first day of vacation, I went out on the balcony of a cabin we rent looking over the Gulf of Mexico, and I finally just unleashed all of my fury on God. What have you done? I've been trying to keep a stiff upper lip and play the role of martyr for truth. But bottom line is, I'm mad. I've done everything you asked me to do. I put my baby, the church that I planted, on the altar. I didn't want to do this in the first place, but I submitted and did it, and this is the payment I get from you. And he says, finally, he said, and this is incredible. This is, I mean, kudos to Tullian for honesty. He says, I remember saying to God in that moment, just give my old life back. He said, and it was as if God said back to him, it's not your old life you want back. It's your old idols you want back. And I love you too much to give them to you. I mean, there are things 
that we want so badly that even though officially, externally, we wouldn't say, I want that as much as I want God, but mess with that? Mess with that? Obstruct that? Critique that? Watch the fight. Now, that is a diagnostic for understanding ourselves. That's the ravenous self. Now, what about the generous God? Now, when you, when you heard that that was going to be the points, here's the ravenous self and here's the generous God, what you might be thinking is, yeah, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, yeah, think about how much God has given us. Who are we to want more stuff on top of what he's given us? We don't need to be ravenous. God's given us everything we need. That is true. That is not the second point. What do we mean by the generous God? Okay, if we're going to understand that, you've got to understand where this English translation was too timid. Almost all the English translations are too timid about something in verse 4. Look, look, uh, look in verse 4. James confronts everybody, and then he addresses them. These are Christians. He says, you adulterous people. That is not what it says in Greek. What it says, the proper way of saying it in Greek would be adulteresses. One word. Adulteresses. Now, that's interesting for a number of reasons. Because all through this book, he addresses his readers as my brothers. So, number one, he really does believe they're fellow Christians. Number two, that's a masculine word, which really meant brothers and sisters. But he calls them my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. And now he goes feminine and addresses them as adulteresses. Why does he do that? And James is drawing on a very old biblical motif. And it's this, is that God, with His people, He is the bridegroom, He is the husband, and the people are the bride. We are the wife. That shows up over and over and over in Scriptures. And here's, the, and here's where you start to see where the gospel, with all this confrontation, is coming through. Because when Jesus comes and begins His public ministry... By the way, where is His first miracle performed? At a wedding. And when somebody asks Him the question about, Hey, you know, John the Baptist, he's got followers, he's got disciples, and, uh, you know, they fast. They fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Why don't your disciples fast? And what did Jesus say? Hey, look, uh, if it's your wedding day, would you fast? No, when you're with the bridegroom, you don't fast. The time's going to come when the bridegroom leaves, and then they'll fast. Well, who's the bridegroom in that little dynamic? He is. But think about this. On another occasion, after he's been performing all these miracles, this, this group of people come to him, and they say, Hey, show us a sign. And here's where you do see how that God is not the insecure person, the way sometimes he's presented, he's kind of wringing his hands like, Please like me back. I'm just not going to be complete until you like me back. That is not God, and that was not Jesus. People come to him and say, show us a sign that we might believe. He, he could have said, all right, name it. What you want? You want me to write in Hebrew in the sky? What, you want me to write, write your mom's name in Hebrew in the sky? Watch this. <laughs> write in English? Hadn't been invented yet. You don't even know what English is. I'm going to write in English in the sky. 
Number one, he knew that wouldn't work. That will not change the heart. But you know what he said? Uh, just to let you all know, it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for signs. That is a form of adultery. Uh, we talk about emotional affairs. What is going on in an emotional affair? And here's the real deceit of it, is that typically the spouse has not yet said, I, I don't want... Look, and I'm going to use the wife. I'm not trying to beat up on women, but because of the dynamic of God as husband, church as bride. I'm going to use the wife as an example. She has not said... I'm leaving you. I divorce you. She's not like packing up with, you know, the paramour and leaving the husband and leaving the children and driving away never to be heard from. That's not the emotional affair. The emotional affair is inside of her probably something like this. I'm not giving up on this marriage. I'm not ready to leave you. But I cannot emotionally get from you what I need. And that's why I occasionally go have a meal with this person. Or I tell him things that I don't tell you. Or this is why I'm, I'm you know, chatting on Facebook with him at midnight rather than telling you, my husband, these things. And here's the deal. Even though she hasn't like burned the bridges and gone off with another man, if she, if she does that and if she tells her husband that she's doing that, she is becoming his enemy. Um, verse 4. Adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, and that word for friendship, is flexible? It can mean buddies, or it can mean quite a bit of intimacy. He's going that direction with it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, uh, the, the, there's a way to deceive yourself and tell yourself, yeah, I think I probably do worry too much about getting other people to like me, the approval of others. And James in our cultural setting might say this, let's call this what it is. You are staying up late chatting online with the approval of others rather than go to your husband. That's what you're doing. Um, I'm, I must look a certain way and be perceived a certain way. James would say, I, that mental picture you have, you are, you're having long suppers with it rather than being home with your husband. Now think about this. If you had a husband who was not the insecure, needy person who's got to be married and got to have his wife back and has to have her approval, and his life is imploding if she doesn't love him back. No, if you had a husband who was incredibly strong and was incredibly secure and knew who he was, but was extremely gracious, and his wife was doing that, and he welcomed her back. What should be her posture? 
should she just bust back in the house and say, let's just not, let's just not even go there. I'm not talking about it. I'm back and we're not... not to, should that be her posture? What should her posture be? On the one hand, she should be torn up inside. And that whatever giddiness she felt when she maybe held hands with this other man or had a meal or shared secrets or chatted online, whatever happened and she felt kind of this surge of electricity and she smiled and she giggled, it should turn to tears. And yet, she should draw near to him. That is exactly how verses 7 through 9 sound. And just listen to this. With, with that picture in your mind, here it is. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and what? He'll tolerate you? If you move toward him, he will move toward you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is language about spirituality that really doesn't click with most of us. But it sure sounds like the prophets. It sure sounds like things Jesus said. And, And here's the incredible thing. It's one thing to say, yeah, I worry, about too, I worry too much about what people think of me. And, you know, if somebody else in the church doesn't think what I want them to think about me, I get really mad and I say some things that I shouldn't say. I need to work on that. Verses, verses. I want to be liked by everybody so much that it infuriates me when I'm not. And if I bump into it in the church, I'm furious there. And what I'm really doing is I'm playing the harlot. And every time I go back to God about it, what does it say? It says it twice. He gives grace. If you've never felt that your sin is adultery, the word grace would just kind of be Christian talk. But if you've felt yourself to be a wandering spouse... That word packs a punch. He takes me back over and over and over. And the more I draw near to Him, instead of being repulsed, He moves toward me. That's incredible. Um, It may be, I'm I'm not telling you how to do it or what it should look like. But, you know, sometimes... We need to throw out specifics. It may be that before you have lunch today, that you need to go into a closet or somewhere quiet and get on your knees and say, I've been kidding myself. There are things that I want so much more than you. I want to tell that thing my secrets. I want to kiss it. I want to hold its hand and I want to derive my energy from it. I want it to be why I get up in the morning and that is to be you and you alone and I am sorry. I have not held fast to you. Would you hold fast to me? You know what the good news is? If you haven't held fast to Him and you say have mercy on me, hold fast to me, He does. That you're already cleansed 
you're already cleansed. And if you're sitting here thinking, you know, if that's what the Christian life is going to look like for the next few decades, that sounds a little on the tiring side. <laughs> At one level, it is. It is kind of tiring. On, on the, for the flesh, the flesh wants to go, ah, no. I want to rest. But what do you want? Do you, do you just want ease? Do we just want ease or do you want deep fulfillment? Do you want deep comfort? Sermon on the Mount, again, what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. By whom? The God we sinned against. And He will not only do that in this life, but in this definitive way. There's going to come a time where He says, from His people's eyes, He'll wipe away every tear. And this is the amazing thing. It's the tears of deaths, the tears of depression, the tears of suicide, tears of addictions, tears of divorce, tears of loss. But one big kind of tear that finally gets wiped away is he comes to our face and he wipes away the tears of, I keep walking away from you. And it's crazy. I'm sorry again for doing it. Those tears are wiped away because we stop wandering. And that's the inheritance that awaits us. Uh, I want to end with this. John Newton, a guy that wrote Amazing Grace, and as I you know, have said many times, he was a slave trader. So when he talked about God forgiving sinners is amazing. He was not blowing smoke. He was amazed. And he wrote a song called, I Asked the Lord. Sounds like just kind of a nice little simple title. And here's, we don't sing it here, but... I'm going to end with this. He said, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. So I ask the Lord, I want to grow as a Christian. That's a good thing to pray. And the rest of the hymn is, well, buckle in. It says, I hope that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request by His love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. I thought He would just swoop in and make me grow. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And He goes on in the song to say, it got so bad I didn't know if I could make it. And the, the last verse is God talking to him. It starts out with him talking to God and it ends with God saying this to him. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. That is God loving us whether we want that kind of love or not because He wants what is really good for us, the real goods. We're to humble ourselves before the living God. Let's pray together. Our Father, it just seems that there's a million directions that we could go with this. It may be that the, the great thing that you've put upon our heart is a fight that we have had with maybe someone in this room or a fellow Christian. And the more we look at it, the more we realize that that fight struck something that was so near and dear 
that we became furious. And we've never repented. We've never really apologized. And we've never really humbled ourselves. We haven't called it adultery. It may be that just this has stirred up a thought about ways that we thought sin was not a big deal and we're feeling that it is a big deal. It is a big deal to put your son on the cross. It is huge. So work in us. Be merciful to, ask, uh, to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.